Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. I am so excited because I am going to be speaking today to a genius. Now, I know he doesn't call himself a genius, but I call him a genius. Uh, He's an expert in transplantation, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, kidney transplantation and where we are. In 2018, there were 21,167 kidneys that were transplanted, and 6,442 of those were living donors. Owners, and 836 were kidney as pancreas transplants. And there's a lot more people on the list, and that's why I'm so excited today to be speaking to Dr. Stanley Jordan. He's the Director of Nephrology and Transplant Immunology at Medical Director of the Kidney Transplant Program at Cedars-Sinai, and then I put AKA Genius. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jordan. Well, thank you very much, Lori. I'm really glad to be with you today, and thank you for that great introduction. Well, you, you know, you know, I've known you since I was a little girl, and and you know, you were just one of the doctors that was all always the most empathetic. I I just felt like you just had this empathy, and um, you you know, you've dedicated your life to helping people keep their kidneys and prevent rejection. And that's what we're going to talk about today, preventing kidney transplant rejection. So uh, because, hey, we want to keep those kidneys and there's just a lot of things in our body that are trying to kick them to the curb. So uh, tell us a little bit about why you became so passionate about this topic. Well, I I think that's a good question. I, uh, you know, I started out my training uh, in uh, pediatrics, which I loved. That's where I met you. Uh, and I really uh, realized I was going to become involved with uh, patients with chronic kidney disease when I was training at UCLA with Dr. Fine and the group there. And uh, I um, uh, eventually came to Cedars to start the program here for both adult and and pediatric uh, patients. But uh, I had training in the interim at Scripps Clinic in La Jolla in research, and in immunology, and I got so fascinated and enveloped in immunology research that when I came back to Los Angeles and was training with Dr. Fine at Children's Hospital, I really saw how the knowledge I had and had gained in research could be applied to the clinical problems of transplant patients. And as you know, at that time, things weren't very good. We didn't have the drugs we have now. We really didn't understand the immune processes. And you know, as well as I do, we've made so much progress in this over the uh, ensuing decades. And But uh, I really came to this from you know a patient-centered standpoint. I saw how people suffer uh, with end-stage kidney disease and dialysis and, and really what a light uh, to their life kidney transplant could bring. Not perfect, but it certainly can bring you back into the light and into uh, having a life of your own. So I've really enjoyed doing that over the years, and I've enjoyed seeing and being part of, you know, scientific progress uh, in this area. 
Well, you know what's so crazy? You're the only doctor that follows me on Facebook. <laughs> and so I feel, and I get to see your family, and you like my pictures, and I mean, you I really... I love your artwork. Oh, well, wow. thank you. Thank you. I know. I'm like a, I'm like an intuitive artist, challenging. And, you know, they say art always comes from emotions. And, you know, I've experienced a lot. So I should be good at art, right? You are. Uh, I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, what is the life expectancy of a kidney transplant? Well, that's, that's a, a tough question. I know yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And it's a bit loaded because a lot of it has to do with the patient and the doctors. And I think that, uh, you know, certainly there are a number of issues from the beginning, and we're working on those as well, where kidneys may not be from the best potential donors, uh, but they do have potential to help the patient for some time. And certainly our challenges are to maximize that. We can talk about that later. But in terms of starting out with a good kidney, uh, the length of of the kidney transplant uh, really depends on the uh, keeping your drugs, specifically tacrolimus and therapeutic range, um, and, you know, and certainly seeing your physicians and dealing with any complications that might come up. But in general, taking medications is the most important part. Right. And we see that, you know, the problems that we have with this, and, I'm, you know, I'm not certainly don't want to point any fingers at anything, but, you know, is that the, uh, the realities of medications is that they do have side effects and they may be very intolerable to patients and the first default is, you know, I don't want to take that anymore. I can't stand it. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Uh, I have hair loss or things like that. But in general, discussing that with your doctor is, uh, is very important because if you're inconsistent or, uh, or completely non-compliant with meds, it allows the immune system to ignite, so to speak, against the kidney and sort of smolder, uh, in a slow smoldering way, destroy the kidney. And this is the biggest problem we have today, many years ago, uh, it was felt that kidneys were lost over time because of uh, cyclosporin toxicity and things like that. But uh, recent data has shown, uh, looking at biopsies and looking at antibodies to HLA targets, that the number one cause for kidney failure is, is antibody rejection. And this correlates directly with not having enough immune suppression. So if we can prevent that, we can make these kidneys last very, very long. The data uh, on, lo- on uh, uh, long-term survival in patients with kidney transplants show that if you don't develop antibodies, you do very well. And uh, so I think that is our number one objective in patients is, you know, make sure you take your meds. If we have problems, uh, let's discuss it, see if we can alter them or, or, or make uh, changes that might, um, you know, re- uh, reduce uh, the immunosuppressive side effects, but stopping them or taking them intermittently is not a good idea. Well, you know, it was ingrained in me as a child that I, I, I have to say I am a professional pill taker. <laughs> I, I think I should get some kind of certification because uh, I can take 10 or 12 at once if I want to. And I, 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 it's like brushing my teeth yes. um, because I've been so trained in it. And if I, I, I've taken pills every day for since I was two years old, I think. And wow. I think that, you know, um, I'm a little a bit of an advantage because, you know, when you learn a skill set when you're younger, it's easier. But if you've never taken a pill in your life and all of a sudden you're 50 and you're like, okay, you got to take all these medications, you have to really work to remember. 
and and develop strategies like cell phone reminders or anything that you know will work. But um, my question is too, because I think people don't get this and they think that oh I have a kidney transplant I'm cured uh, that's not true but what's the difference between chronic and acute rejection acute rejection may occur very early uh, after transplant uh, you know while we're trying to adjust the medications usually it's what we call cell mediated rejection and treatment of that is usually with high dose steroids and that we know does not impact long-term uh, graft survival so having an early rejection episode is not going to cause problems in general um, if it's uh, managed uh, well. However, the chronic rejection and what we call now chronic antibody-mediated rejection, where the immune antibodies in your body are, that are directed against the kidney uh, uh, attack uh, the kidney and uh, do this in sort of a low-grade way is the number one challenge that we have, in my opinion, in transplantation today because this is what causes most kidneys to fail over time. And again, those antibodies come up when you're not taking the meds like you should or for some reason uh, the levels are not being maintained where they should be. There may be medical conditions that cause that uh, and there are also some physicians who feel that maybe having lower levels of prograph are, are uh, the way to go because it's, to it's known to have toxicity to the kidney. But now we know we really shouldn't do that. We really need to maintain those levels in therapeutic range. And for us, uh, and I, you know, I, just for your and your listeners, I think that what we consider is the blood level should be about five to seven long term. And that's for tacrolimus, right? Tacrolimus. And for cyclosporin, somewhere probably around 100 to 150 in that range, your doctor would want to do that. Now, if you get below that, it's not good because we know that in studies that have now been published that in large patient populations, that if you tend, to tend towards uh, being out of therapeutic range uh, for more than 60% of the time, uh, that you will develop antibodies and you will develop antibody rejection, the chronic rejection. So, and patients who stay in therapeutic range most of the time, and if you picked one number for prograph, it would be six. Stay at six, uh, it's, you, you really don't get into trouble. So those are the things we recommend to our patients now and try to let them know that if they go see their doctor and the doctor says, well, let's go down because your level's seven or six, and you say, no, I think that's in therapeutic range. And, you know, um, it's interesting because my third transplant that I had in 1990, and it didn't work for it, had a lot of the problems you described. But then it kicked in, and I left the hospital with a 2.2 creatinine. Yeah. And, you know, I religiously took my medicine. Mm -hmm. That kidney lasted over 20 years. People had no idea that it would last me 20 years. But I did exactly what you said. Like, the kidney was a little bit traumatized. It wasn't at the best creatinine, but it didn't get any worse because I didn't create any antibodies to kick it to the curb, right? Is that like the best analogy? I think so. <laughs> and I think that's what we know also is that kidneys, and we're working on this with some other therapeutic interventions, mm -hmm. but the cadaver kidneys that come from, uh, you know, situations where the donors had trauma or things of that sort and the kidney may not be working right away. Uh, are more susceptible to uh, immune injury because 
they do have that what we call ischemic injury where there's not been blood flow to the kidney and this can sort of enhance the immune system ability to uh, react to it so in that situation if you're not getting your meds as you should you would have even higher risk for developing rejections so maintaining uh, blood levels of the tacrolimus there is even more critical to uh, prevent the uh, immune reactivity to the uh, to the kidney and I think that's probably why you did well because you did that and even though the creatinine is not perfect it's good enough to uh, get you 20 years downrange that's pretty good that's pretty good and um, you know it got me to the next technology that I'll kind of close with uh, you know to get me into my fourth transplant that's uh, doing well yeah. um, and I hear this a lot and because I want to go into some of the things that are happening now to really test for rejection but you know, what do you tell patients, I forgot my medication? And so I know that that happens, but do you double up on dose or do you call the doctor? And uh, what do you tell patients that yeah, say that's, that? Yeah, that's a great point. Generally, what I tell them if they say, oh, I forgot my medications last night, I just tell them to go back on their standard immunosuppression uh, regimen. So take it today, take it tonight. In certain situations, what we will do is maybe have them take an extra one milligram or two milligrams of, of prograph or a, an equivalent for cyclosporine. You know, we don't use as much cyclosporine as we did many years ago, but um, prograph is our main drug now. But uh, if, if it's just one dose, I think if they get back on their regimen, I, I, I think they'll be okay. But again, missing many doses is where we really run into trouble and, uh, and where, the, where the levels are falling out of what we call therapeutic range uh, over time. This is not this is where we uh, see the immune system come up pretty quickly. Well, and I heard this story, and um, but a patient hadn't been taking their meds, and they had to go to the doctor, so they just took a bunch of them before they went to the doctor. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know that, right? Yes, I've seen that. <laughs> I've seen everything, Lori. I've been around a long time. Yeah. I mean... You got to think who are you fooling here. You I know, know exactly. Like you know, you're you're not you wouldn't fool anybody with a drug test either. So um, you know, you might you know you might want to try to get somebody else's urine or blood, but that won't work either. So we really have to just take the meds and do the right thing. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I know. I'm not sure if you want to talk about this now or later, but you know, I think in the future we will and hopefully not too distant future, we'll have other approaches that will be much more user-friendly for patients, uh, new drugs that are being developed that could be uh, infusions or, or taken like an insulin shot right. uh, once a month. I think that's what we're looking at that may help uh, patients with their compliance with their regimen. But we're, we're not quite there yet, but we're moving that way. Well, there have been a lot of strategies over the years that I've seen to, you know, understand rejection and prevent it. And uh, one of my first questions before we jump into some of the testings and the ways that people are screening to understand if a person's rejecting, because you feel fine till you're in the end stage. That's the problem. You don't, um, is prednisone. Do you have an opinion on prednisone? Like I, I, I say it's the secret to use. It, it takes all the wrinkles out. I try to be positive about it, but I've taken a long time and had some serious, you know, other issues as a result of it, but I, you know, I wouldn't give up prednisone because I, I believe it's helping me. Correct. And I think that, you know, there uh, certainly uh, can start out to say that, you know, you would, if you talk to other physicians, they may uh, have different opinions uh, about this. And I think that's fair. You know, uh, 
I, I say that steroids are the drug we love to hate. Right. You know, they work very well for what we want them to, but they do have uh, a large retinue of side effects that patients are displeased with. And the way we've dealt with this is, and I think many other centers as well, instead of completely taking them out of um, the regimen of uh, post-transplant medications, is to use them immediately post-transplant at high doses, but then taper rapidly to lower doses like 5 milligrams a day. And in doing that, we feel like we really limit the toxicity of the drug, but we retain the ability to prevent rejection episodes. And certainly we know that steroid-free protocols, certainly in my experience, are associated with more rejection episodes uh, than if you're taking steroids. And there's certainly something there to that. And we have to be uh, cognizant of that. And one of the things we feel is important, again, is to prevent rejections because once they happen, they can sensitize your body and your immune system uh, to start reacting against the allograft or your kidney transplant. And that is something we do not want to happen. So I feel using steroids in a measured way where we you know, use them uh, at high dose at the beginning of the transplant and then taper very quickly, I mean, two to three weeks after the transplant down to a lower dose is the way to go. And back in your day, you know, when you had those early ones, we didn't have good medicines. No. The early transplants. No, no, we you had, didn't. And we used <laughs> high dose steroids and we got a lot of bad side effects. So we don't need to do that anymore. So I think that people think more about that than, okay, uh, you know, if we are getting a very quick burst and then tapering, then we have a much better outcome and, uh, uh, with the drug. Well, when I, I have to share this story. When I was in 1979, when I had my first transplant at age 13, and it wasn't working, and, you know, anyways, I was on high-dose steroids, and I was the pickiest eater ever. And I can still bring up this feeling of recall. My mom liked liver and onions, and I it disgusted me. Mm-hmm. I would have eaten anything anything i didn't care if it i i mean i was just this this yeah. hunger level that i can still bring up a recall for that was you know this it was worse than anything i couldn't think of anything else but just wanting to eat <laughs> and uh, and this is somebody who didn't you know food touched i wouldn't t- you know i couldn't eat it if it was on the plate together or something um, but i'll never forget that feeling so we've progressed so much in immunology therapy uh, patients, you have, everybody has a lot to be grateful for, for all the researchers out there that are make, making it easier. So uh, let's move into like, so how do you, how do you test for rejection from uh, uh, matching the kidney to um, after the transplant? Yeah, it's a great question. And we've had a lot of advancements there as well. And I think that's important for your listeners to know. Uh, we do... Um, uh, you know, the the story of matching, people come to us and they go, well, I have a donor, but they're not a match. And I go, what do you mean? Well, uh, they're different blood type or I don't have the same HLA matching. And, and we tell them, look, that's not a big deal anymore. We can deal with that. And we deal with it through either desensitization, removing antibodies uh, uh, with our treatments to make them a compatible donor, or having them go into a, a paired exchange situation. So we can deal with those types of incompatibilities uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, certainly the blood group incompatibility thing, I think we, we really solved that pretty much. We, the 
the patients that we treat that want to have a donor that's blood group incompatible, we uh, can remove the antibodies to a level and, and virtually all these patients to allow them to get an uh, HLA incompatible, or excuse me, an ABO or blood group incompatible donor. Uh, and if not, they can go into the exchange. So, Well, well you know, I want to give this example to people because I was, I'm an O negative mm-hmm. and I had, you know, people coming forward because, you know, obviously you tra- you transplanted me at your center mm-hmm. and the best match for me was an A. They yeah. had the, the best immunology response to me, but then through the process, uh, they found you found out that that donor had some health issues that wasn't going to be the best donor for me. So it then moved on to my stepsister who was O O negative like me, but that wasn't the first choice, and it blows people's mind. Yeah, you're right, but you know it's a matter of what you know. The tools that we have have changed right. so much. We can deal with those antibodies uh, in a very good way now, and we've. And we're going to be able to do it even much better. There are many, many new drugs coming along that I think will help solve this problem in the future and hopefully the very near future. But I think that the, you know, the techniques that we have, whether the plasma exchange and using drugs like IVIG and rituximab have been uh, real workhorses to help people get transplanted where in the past they would not and where people felt these t- types of transplants were impossible to do so we can yeah. do that today that's me i'm a 0.8 yeah. creatinine with 100 percent antibodies yeah. i'm living proof of the genius on the other line here he, he <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to make you laugh because you're so <laughs> humble you're so humble you don't know how great you are um <laughs> you saved so many people's lives so well, i get to you, brag Lee. it's my show like thank you <laughs> appreciate that yeah but i think that th- those things are um you know, are real advances and uh, taken together with, you know, the matching paradigms with the paired exchange, you can really offer people a much better chance at uh, getting transplanted. And I mean, these, these two types of approaches work together for us. We, we, we often will have patients who are incompatible and we'll put them into the paired exchange and we can't find somebody that's compatible there. So we would We'll say, okay, we'll take an ABO incompatible donor from that's a better HLA match, just like you said. Right. Because those work out really well, and we can deal with that. And we've done that many times. And uh, and these people, are again, would not have been transplanted in the past. Now can get a kidney and, and do well. Well, after you're transplanted, you go through the, the initial month or two. This is where it's it's really up to the patient to be proactive, make appointments, go see their doctor, and tell us a little bit about what you're doing now for when you're post transplant. Uh, how you can you know because my creatinine's point eight. Um, yep. I I'm, my blood pressure is good, but what are some of the things you're doing to help uh, understand if patients have a little villain in their body that's looking to attack their kidney? Yeah, okay, that's great, and we do have to have that vigilance. And you're you're right. We all start out looking at the creatinine, and we want to see that it is stable over time, and there's nothing nothing else going up. Uh, you know, uh, other markers or abnormality abnormalities in your biochemical status that would raise uh, eyebrows. But but we know that the kidney can be injured or have ongoing injury and maintain a relatively good creatinine for a long time. So we can't focus on that alone. So what happened, the first step in this whole thing, uh, 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 the sort of immune monitoring, 
revolution that we've had was the development of what we call DSAs, or donor-specific antibody testing, mm-hmm. which we really started in earnest about uh, in around 2005 to 2007. And we've used that to, and especially if people are sensitized or they've had previous transplants or high risk for rejection, or if we think, you know, maybe they're not taking their meds like they should, we'll see that antibody come up and in a high percentage of them. That means that, that we got a problem. If we see donor antibody development, and I mentioned it earlier, that one of the things that in the study that I quoted that came from Colorado that they found that people with that had inadequate prograph levels uh, more than 60% of the time started to develop these antibodies to the donor and that led to antibody rejection and then ultimately more graft loss at five years. So uh, if we see that donor antibody up, we say, hey, something's going on, we need to do a biopsy and we biopsy the kidney to confirm or see if if there was rejection or not. And we like that because it gives us a blood test that's sort of a sentinel uh, for a potential event in the kidney. Now, what has happened in the last two years is even, I think, better. There's a new test that is called AlloSure, or a test that we look at donor-derived cell-free DNA. That's a mouthful, but it's basically looking at donor DNA in your blood, in the patient's blood, because we know people are not, unless you're an identical twin, they're not genetically compatible uh, to the donors uh, in most situations. And it's a pretty, pretty straightforward idea is that if you have inflammation in your kidney, the DNA of the donor kidney will start to appear in your blood okay. as a result of that injury. And that is exactly what we um, uh, see in a very reliable way. So if we think something's going on, even though the creatinine may be good, we might do this test and they go, ah, something's there, we need to biopsy the patient. And uh, and we do see a very high predictability for uh, rejection. But more importantly, what we found is that, you know, we see people's creatinines bounce all over the place, especially earlier because of prograph levels and hydration status and things like that, is that if it's negative, we know we don't have to biopsy the patient because the negative predictive value for the test is very strong. That means that if it's negative, you don't have a rejection. So that's very, very helpful to us to avoid having people come in and have to have biopsies. So this is really, I think, helping not only to be, refine our diagnostic abilities, but to do it in a way that doesn't impose invasive procedures on the patient. Well, and you said about donor-specific antibodies because, you know, everybody watched the creatinine, and once the creatinine started moving, oh, they're rejecting. Well, it's kind of too late then. That's the, correct. The, the, yep. the, the little villain has found the kidney, and it's going to slowly attack it. Um, and we got to make sure the little antibody, I make it a really bad corny analogy. Maybe I watch too many Avenger movies, but that, um, I, I think it's important for people to know that. And uh, yes. um, are all kidneys... Um, have DSA testing uh, deceased donors and living donors, and how far does it go back, if so? Yes, uh, we do now, you know, and, and in most centers in the United States, I think probably all for uh, UNOS listing, we do screen patients for uh, HLA antibodies before transplant. And so patients would go into a category, either they don't have any, 
at all, if they have no HLA antibodies at all, uh, then they're not sensitized. And they can be monitored periodically while they're on the list to determine if they develop them. And if they get blood transfusions or uh, other types of exposures to human tissues, they may develop them, and then we could then monitor later. Uh, if patients have uh, HLA antibodies, uh, when they come to listing, we would screen them to determine if they're what we using a test called Luminex to see if they're class one, HLA class one, class two, or both. And with, if that's the case, then those are listed as potential avoids for kidney uh, donation. So this is where the problem arises for patients who are sensitized. If they have a lot of these antibodies, uh, they may have uh, a, a predicted cross-match positivity with almost anyone in the world that would donate a kidney to them if they're 100%. Right. And so uh, what our work has been in this area is to treat these patients with these treatments to try to lower that down so that they would have an advantage in getting a negative, or not necessarily negative, but a, a compatible cross-match or acceptable cross-match, I should say, where there's still some antibody but low level that would allow them to get a kidney. And this has been very successful for us. And I think it uh, depends on the center that you go to. Some patients may be just placed on the list and those antibodies listed as avoids, and they may never ever get an opportunity. And so that's why it's important for them to be considered for uh, uh, desensitization treatments that would increase their chances of getting a kidney transplant. And I think that's something that your listeners, if they have these antibodies, would want to uh, think about and to uh, make sure that they're that they uh, have this offered to them. Yeah, to ask. I mean, every center practices differently. I tell patients yeah. that all the time, um, and you just need to be your own advocate. So once you um, do the testing um, of of the Alishore or what's the other one, Luminex? Yeah, Luminex is the HLA antibody testing. Testing. So, so that would give. Uh, and you know, if you're transplanted, what we would do, let's say, if you have a Luminex positivity uh, during your pre-transplant stay on the list, and then we get a kidney offer, we know what the HLA antigens are for that kidney, and we would say, oh, you have an antibody to A, you know, HLA, A, B, C, whatever, and you don't get the transplant. Or we say, okay, you have these antibodies, but they're low enough, and we've treated you, we'll take that kidney. And that's sort of, in a nutshell, how it would work. So some centers will take positive cross-match kidneys if patients have been desensitized, others would not. The, uh, and then how you deal with that afterwards is, you know, part of the desensitization and post-transplant immunosuppression protocols is really important because you want to have drugs that would help prevent those antibodies from popping back up and injuring the kidney. Well, and one of my good friends, I mean, she was 100, 99%, and she was at the top of the list, but never got called, yeah. you know, and then you guys gave her some treatment, and uh, you knew her at the top, and because she was going to get called in the next six, and she got a kidney, and it, it did re really well for her. So, uh, people who are listening, um, if you're in that category, there's hope. So, so once you do the testing, um, and then you find that I'm, uh, you know, there may be some, what is the treatment? What do you do when you say, hey, this is a... 
this little villain's not very strong, but he could be. I love what your analogy is. Your antibodies, not he's not super bad, but he's friends with super bad antibodies. Yeah, that's um, right. And I mean, I love that analogy. Like you know. <laughs> yeah, he can, and he could get and he could recruit more. So we know, you know, I tell people that even though you may not have antibodies, uh, you know, we'll get a cross match uh, sometimes, or we'll. That's uh, in patients that have had exposures, previous transplants, things like that. And we'll get a, uh, a cross match that's negative with no antibodies. And I, I tell them, I said, look, because it's, the sun is shining today doesn't mean it's going to shine tomorrow. You know, you put a kidney in there, it's going to really aggravate the immune system. And so we try to use drugs like uh, IVIG and rituximab uh, to prevent that rebound, what we call bounce back of antibodies that we know will come. And that's been pretty successful, and we uh, we feel like that we will have newer agents uh, coming uh, very soon that could be even better in this regard in terms of even though those little antibodies are there right now, you don't want them to turn into a, a, a big army of, uh, of antibodies that could a- attack the kidney. Well, and I have that one little B8 antibody, and it is stubborn. And so I, I know that you're working on him. Yeah, <laughs> you're yep. working on him. Um, but, you know, I feel great. Everything's great. But it's so, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I know it's an old saying, exactly. but it's so true. It is so true. And, uh, well, um, just for our listeners, so this is a test you take and you do some other, uh, you can be more proactive. Um, uh, I want to switch just a little bit, like, you know, people who lose their kidney for various reasons, um, you know, they can get another transplant. Some patients don't think they can. And, and this is always interesting to me. You've had four kidney transplants. How were you lucky enough to get four kidney transplants? I'm like, well, I lived 50 years with the illness to get four. Yeah. Um, I, I try to explain that. But, um, you know, if people lose a, tra- a kidney, they can get listed because they're going to have antibodies after you lose a transplant, correct? Correct. Pretty much you can say that for sure, yes. And uh, the other question is, and I think it's interesting, uh, pregnancy causes antibodies. Um, if you're a female and have a, a child with a transplant, are you putting yourself at risk for building antibodies? That's a great question. Uh, in general, no. And uh, the reason, when we looked at that, uh, we've had kidney transplant patients who have had children. And the reason that you would anticipate it could cause a problem is that the uh, moms are exposed to what we call paternal or father, the father's antigens, the HLA, which is different from theirs, and they can make anti-HLA antibodies during the pregnancy. Uh, now, what we know that this can happen, but usually it's after several exposures. Also, the placenta produces, and we're, we're studying this now here at Cedars with a group in, in nephrology, the placenta has a number of proteins that it produces that turns inflammation off and helps to protect the baby from any antibodies. Oh, wow. So it would suppress the mom's immune system, and it does it very well. So this may be a ticket to future therapies where we could isolate proteins from the placenta that would suppress the immune system. Now, so that, that would help the mom. And also, if a mom is pregnant... Uh, and takes her, we want them to take their immunosuppression during pregnancy. Certain, you know, they can take Prograf, they can take prednisone and Imuran, certainly not cell sept, uh, at all because of its ability to damage the baby. 
Um, but those would help prevent any immune responses as well to um, to any potential uh, HLA antigen. So I think that would help protect the mom's kidney. And in general, we don't see rejections if that those things are in line. Well, and I mean, that's just a whole other kidney talk. And uh, I know that I could talk to you for hours, Dr. Jordan. You're just such a wealth of knowledge. Uh, and I just want to recap a little bit about what people who have kidney disease and have a transplant, what they have to do to prevent rejection. Just give me the short little list because I want people to know this. They, they have a role in keeping their transplant. Yes, they do. I mean, I think that that's, that's probably the most important message we could get across today is that if you take your medications, and certainly the most important medication, if, you, if I were to single it out, would be Prograf, or if you're on cyclosporin, it would be cyclosporin. Those drugs are critical in preventing antibody responses to your kidney transplant. Uh, if you fail to keep your blood levels in therapeutic range uh, for any period of time, uh, it's, you are opening yourself up for potential rejection making antibodies to the kidney, and eventually having kidney graft loss. This is our number one problem today. So take your medications as prescribed. If you have problems with your medications, discuss them with your doctor and maybe get alterations there. But the meds are our best ticket forward. And I think if you have any kind of problems, you can always talk to your doctor about uh, that. But I think we do have issues with medications. Uh, We know that they're real, and we try to deal with side effects in different ways. We can now offer alternative medication regimens um, to some patients that might that would take the prograph issue away. And I think in the future we will be seeing the development of uh, newer regimens that may consist of having two uh, shots a month wow. with no pills. So we hope that will happen. Two shots and of that- whiskey or actual needle shots? <laughs> well, whiskey, I don't know if that would work, okay. but uh, okay. you know, I curious. think that. Uh, but the, these would be shots of you know long-acting yeah. uh, immune-modulating yeah. drugs. So uh, that I think will be coming, and I think that will help people be more compliant, also have less side effects, and that's what our hope is. Well, and it is. I mean, it's it's so important to follow up, get the blood tests, and then last, I mean. You know, don't get sick. I mean, prevent. I mean, people, you know, they get sick and they end up, um, you know, with different problems. And, you know, try to stay healthy. Wash your hands. Do things so you don't get an infection because that creates an immune response. And and it it puts you at danger. So thank you so much, Dr. Jordan. Um, You are a wealth of knowledge. You are a genius. I'm going to say it one more time. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you're a real gift to the community and have saved so many people's lives. So. Thank you on behalf of patients. Thank you, Lori. It's always a pleasure to talk to you on your show. Take care. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.